Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey... Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. This is episode 44. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, and I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute Family Counseling Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. If anyone, you or yourself or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's difficulties, please reach out to us for help. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help get us exposure. Also, go to the website, theaddictedmind.com, and sign up for our newsletter, and you can get each episode right to your inbox. We have a great episode today with Brad Kammer, and he is going to talk about somatic psychotherapy. And what that is, is working with the body, working with the nervous system to resolve shock trauma and also developmental trauma. And we talk about both and we talk about how developmental trauma can impact us right in the current moment. We have a great conversation about it. He shares a lot of wisdom and knowledge about it and how this approach can help anyone who is struggling with traumatic responses. So I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. There's a lot of good information in it and let's start it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Addicted Mind. I have a great guest today. I'm very excited to talk to him. This is one area of work that I'm very interested in, and I see a lot of potential in the realm of therapy. So today's guest is Brad Kammer, and he's going to talk about somatic work and working with trauma through the body. I guess, is that is that right, Brad? Do you want to introduce yourself and you can actually go into more detail about it? 
Sure. Yeah. Really pleasure to be here and talking with you and introduce my work. Yeah, it's, it's somatic psychology, somatic psychotherapy, and working particularly through the lens of working with stress and trauma. And uh, my specialty is really working with developmental trauma, which I can uh, describe a little bit more in detail, but it's, it's trauma that's unresolved from childhood wounds Okay, and how that impacts both the mind and the body. Great. So tell us a little bit about you and um, how you got into this work and how you kind of found your way to this, uh, this area of expertise. Yeah. So originally before I became a therapist, I was a humanitarian aid worker and I worked in the Asia, in the Thai Burma border with Burmese refugees. And, you know, it's kind of two major things happened to me back then. One was that I didn't know at the time, but I developed secondary PTSD just from what I was experiencing with the people that I was working with and living with and in relationship with. And uh, I had to leave earlier than I had anticipated and needed to seek support for my own secondary trauma reactions. And the, the other piece that was deeply transformative was watching the Burmese culture and the Burmese people who had transgenerationally been dealing with trauma. For those of you that don't know the history, just they had been colonized, they have had brutal civil wars, there's a lot of cultural oppression, and just watching their capacity to be resilient in the face of trauma. And that led me to really want to understand what it is about humans and about cultures in communities that we can deal with such horrible, huge things. And I got then kind of started understanding that there was two main ingredients that many traditional cultures had that we really had become pretty disconnected from in the West, which one is that most of the healing rituals that they had were about embodiment. They brought their bodies into the healing, whether it was singing and chanting and dancing or drumming or even storytelling, they would often role play or act out the stories they would be telling as part of their healing process. So that was number one, is really understanding how the body had gotten left out of Western medicine and Western therapy for sure. So you kind of experienced this firsthand and really kind of saw this trauma for yourself and then for these other people around you. Yeah, exactly. And you know, this embodiment piece is what led me into somatic psychology. I, I wanted to understand how, because I, I, what I saw in the West was that people traditionally were just trying to talk through their problems and that it isn't always effective. And how do we actually bring in these deeper body responses in a way that can help us resolve these very deep reactions that get stuck as PTSD, as trauma? So did you, I just, I'm, I'm, as you're talking about this, so you came back because you were struggling with your secondary post-traumatic stress. And part of, is, is that part of that journey kind of made you ask these questions or led you to ask these questions? Yes, for sure. I mean, part of it was definitely a, a personal journey of healing my own process, the, you know, the things that were emerging from the secondary trauma that I experienced. Because one of the things that happens with, with trauma as adults is not only are we dealing with the effects of uh, what's happening in the present, but oftentimes it, it's like a Pandora's box. It can unleash all sorts of things from earlier in our life that we had never resolved. Right. So it kind of brings it all to the surface. Exactly. So for me, that became kind of the beginning of my real healing journey for myself and also to learn how to support others in, in their own healing around unresolved trauma. Great. 
Great. Wow. And so you were kind of talking, I, I kind of interrupted you and you were talking about the second part. Yeah. Yeah. The second part is equally as important as the first part through, through the body and how, uh, learning how to heal through the body. The second part is about relationships. And when I teach therapists, I always do this little joke about how like, you know, when we're working one-on-one with therapists and a client, usually we're in a, like a room, a small room that has a lock on it and you pull down the window shades and you put on the white noise machine and you hold all your calls. It's like, it's very insular in terms of this one-on-one dynamic. And in most traditional cultures, that's not how they did healing. They did it through community. They did it through relationships. And I really want to understand the power of re- the healing power of relationships. And so those two things started to come together for me about how do we use relationships and use the body to really support effective, deep healing. So let's talk a little bit for for people who may want to know more or I guess let's talk a little bit about like this trauma in the body, what that means and what that looks like and and what we're kind of talking about. Yeah, so it's really exciting time right now to be in this field working with trauma because things are shifting very quickly. So for the last 35 plus years, we've really been focusing on PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is what we often refer to as shock trauma. And those are event traumas, like you have a major car accident, you have a fall from a ladder, uh, combat situations, assault situations, things like this that are life-threatening or at least life overwhelming experiences that come often out of nowhere or come from external sources that really create significant problems for us moving forward. And so for the last almost 40 years now, the field has really been dominated with this focus on PTSD. But what we also know is that there's a different kind of trauma that we refer to as developmental trauma or sometimes complex trauma. And that's different, the nature of that. And even the brain system and the, the body's process is different with what we call shock trauma than with more complex or developmental trauma. And so what this complex and developmental trauma is, is childhood trauma where we had, maybe it wasn't life-threatening, but maybe early in our life, our needs weren't fully being attended to, or there was abuse or violence around us, or there was some sort of neglect or even just environmentally, maybe outside of our home, that we're growing up in a, a situation of violence or famine. And even we could even take it even further that sometimes transgenerationally, these things get passed down as well, that then we're born into our lives already with a legacy of unresolved trauma from earlier generations. Wow. So it kind of it encompasses this much larger, broader picture than what we usually just think about, which is when we think about PTSD, we think about the traumatic car accident. Exactly. We think about war, but this goes even deeper than that. You're talking about um, trauma that comes early in life, even what you're saying, transgenerational uh, in you. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that's really exciting about what's happening now is some of, some of your listeners might be familiar with the ACEs study, which is referred to as the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And this study has been around for about 20 years now, and it really has demonstrated the long-term consequences, not just of emotional or psychological health and well-being, but also physical health, that when we have these adverse childhood experiences, these these unresolved uh, traumatic experiences in childhood, 
it, it changes our brain and body in ways that as we get older and further into development, we have personality disturbances, we have relational disturbances, we have physical disturbances that can turn into medical conditions. And from our perspective in the somatic world, we don't separate those out. We don't separate the brain from the body, the mind from the body. And so our approaches are really to try to help on all levels, to try to help with the, getting the brain and the body more into balance. Right. And I, when you're talking about this, I'm thinking the old adage of time heals all wounds. And uh, what you're kind of saying is, well, not necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. That this, this trauma can stay with us if we yes. don't, if we're not able to resolve it. Exactly. And, and in fact, the strategy of, of kind of avoiding it and denying it often makes it worse. Right. Yeah. And I see that a lot too. It's like this trauma is just, it just stays with you even if you, if even if you're really good at like kind of putting it to the side, it doesn't um, heal that at all. Exactly. And so this is what's happening now. It's called the trauma-informed care movement, where many agencies and hospitals and clinics and even schools are becoming what they refer to as trauma-informed. And I, I think of it in a way like the polio vaccine. It's like this is, it's just super important for us to understand that trauma is treatable and curable. It's just that we have to understand what's at the root of it and how to, how to address it, how to work with it. And from my perspective, it goes even to a very global scale where I think that unresolved trauma is at the root of the violence in the world and all the injustice and all the, the, the global problems we're having. I definitely can agree with that because when we're stuck in trauma, we can't slow down. We can't think. We're, we tend to be reactionary. Our nervous system is already set up in its fight or flight response. And uh, we're making decisions based on that. And we don't even sometimes know it. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. You know, one of, um, just to share one of my experiences, because you were talking about how you had gone to Burma and, and experienced that. In my early career, I was working on a documentary and we were filming Holocaust survivors and, and their families and their generations. And this was before I was a psychotherapist and before I did this work. And even in doing that documentary and doing these interviews, you could see the, the trauma just kind of going down the generation from these Holocaust survivors who had been in Auschwitz and Dachau to their, their children and even to their grandchildren as we interview their grandchildren. And it was a really profound experience for me to see that trauma pass from generation to generation. And I think we're finally coming to an appreciation of it. I agree wholeheartedly. And it, uh, it needs to be addressed. We, can, we can't, avo just like we can't avoid our own personal trauma, we can't avoid the collective trauma that we've all been a part of on one way or, or the other. Yeah, and I think we're, we're beginning to, to see that. And with that trauma, once again, comes all the ways to cope. And one of those ways is turning to addictive behaviors, uh, addictive substances as a way to cope with this, these affects that we don't even know we're feeling in a way, if that makes sense. Exactly. That's exactly how we put it too in the, in the uh, complex trauma field is that at the root of these addictive behaviors are, I mean, they are strategies for managing the unresolved dynamics, unresolved needs that were not addressed during childhood. And we, we had to take these strategies on early to survive. I mean, it really feels like a life and death thing when we're children 
and not getting our basic needs met or experiencing abuse or violence or threat in, in, the, in the environment. And so we develop all sorts of survival strategies is what we call them. And those, those help us get through childhood. But then what happens as we move into adulthood and even in late, late childhood and adolescence and such, it, those survival strategies start to work against us and start to block our capacity for real connection to ourselves and to others and for learning how to regulate ourselves on, with pain or distress or fear. And so we find other external means to then help us manage ourselves. Yeah, and, and I definitely see that. What about, you know, what I encounter a lot when I'm working with people, especially in the addiction field, and um, we start to kind of talk about trauma and what trauma is like is they say to me, oh, well, yeah, I had a pretty good childhood. I, I don't know. It was fine. But yeah, you know, dad was drunk all the time. And yeah, he would, he would beat us up. But, you know, it wasn't that bad. I don't, you know, I don't know what you're talking about, this trauma. <laughs> you know, can you tell me like that? Because that's a response that a lot of people tell me. Like, I, it wasn't that bad. I don't know what you're, why are you making a big deal about this, you know, this thing? Why do we have to go in the past? Well, that's one of the great things about the somatic approaches that I've been trained in and that now I'm a trainer in, that we don't really have to work with the past because from our perspective, the pattern, we call them the psychobiological patterns. These are patterns that get laid down very early through childhood that are both in our brain and then you know through our nervous system and all the different systems in our body. They, they, they are pathways of how we respond to life experience. And we have this kind of joke in the model that I teach, it's called NARM, that we don't have to regress our, our adult clients back to their childhood because they're already regressed sitting in front of us that those, pattern, those patterns have never gone away. They're sitting right there in front of us. So we don't really have to work with the stories about what did or didn't happen to us throughout childhood. We work with the direct patterns that are still left over from childhood that are now disrupting their life in, in the form of symptoms and behaviors. So working very in the present moment, there's no need to um, revisit these per se. They're already there. Exactly. Now, some clients do like to revisit those, but we, it's not necessary as part of the process from our perspective. Right. Okay. So tell, tell us a little bit more about this neuroaffective relational model of, of working with trauma. Yeah, so NARM, the neuroaffective relation model, it, it comes out of uh, Dr. Lawrence Heller, who wrote the book Healing Developmental Trauma. It comes out of 45 years of him experiencing a lot of different psychotherapeutic approaches. So he was trained in somatic approaches. He was trained in more traditional psychodynamic approaches, kind of the Freud pathway. He was trained in different relational approaches, different mindfulness approaches. And he put together a model that is really targeting working with these early attachment and relational wounds. Developmental trauma is what we refer to it as. So tell me, tell me a little bit, like just so people know, what, what, is, what do you mean by attachment? Yeah, attachment is the process of, in traditional culture, we call it bonding. It's the relationship between our caregivers and the children. And depending on how that process of, of early relationship gets laid down, were our parents attentive? Were they scary? Were they inconsistent? Were they really disorganized? There's, there's different strategies or styles that our parents had in terms of how they were raising us and how we created that relationship we imprint that, we take that inside of ourselves and that affects those patterns that I referred to before, those psychobiological, those body-mind patterns 
that end up leading into our adult personalities. So attachment is, is really at the core of how we develop as, as humans. Right, okay, okay. Yeah, and so in, in the NARM approach, we help, like you said, Dwayne, that we, we really work in the here and now, we work in the present moment about what's getting in their way of what it is that they truly want for themselves. So if they're struggling with addictions, if they're struggling with anxiety or depression or relational issues, we really help them to clarify what's their in, what's the intention of what it is that they really want for themselves and then starting to learn about these patterns that are that are in their way of getting what it is that they truly want for themselves and again from our perspective these patterns are leftover survival strategies that worked as children to survive but as adults they're really just getting in our way and we don't even know a lot of times it's just the air we breathe like that's why when you said before about like people saying, hey, my childhood was great, everything was fine, and yet they're having marriage difficulties, they're having addictive problems, they're having sleep issues, sexual issues, there's something going on. And where does that come from? Where does that emerge from? So dealing with it like right in the, once again, kind of right in the present moment, let's deal with just the pattern of how it happens in your body, what's going on and having that awareness. Exactly. Yeah. Pattern in your body, pattern in your emotional responses, pattern in your thoughts and the pattern, how it gets manifested in relationships. So all those levels we're working with in the, the NARM approach. Right. And so when a person starts to, do they start to identify these patterns and start to say, oh, now I can kind of see why I respond that way because my, in my childhood, this happened. And so I can see why I'm so scared to have a relationship because I was abandoned by mom or dad or they start to put that all together. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I'll give you just an example. I was working with a guy recently. And uh, he grew up in a, in a family system where one of his parents, who was kind of his primary attachment figure, his primary relationship, was severely depressed when he was young. And so him, as a very young child, asking for needs from a parent that had very limited capacity because of the, de- the, the extreme depression was not an option. The child couldn't do that. And so the child learned to disconnect from his needs and asking for his needs. So then fast forward 45 years later, and he he's constantly getting himself into situations and relationships where he is feeling like he's a doormat. He's getting walked all over. He feels very victimized by experiences. And at the root of it, helping him really connect to the way that he had to disconnect from his needs and asking for his needs in his life. Right. And it, and it becomes so out of uh, consciousness, I think, and people get stuck. And so part of this helps bring it to the front. Would that be? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Not, not only is it out of consciousness, this is where it gets really funny, is we, we identify it with it. Like we, we, we take pride in being someone that never asked for what we need. We take pride in being there for other people all the time, but not needing anything for ourselves. So when I'm teaching, I tell the story about how a few years back, I started getting a lot of people in my practice from child protective services and social services. And they would come in and they would always, in the first session, kind of as a badge of honor, tell me how many sick days or vacation days they've accrued. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, like, that's not a good thing. Like, those are days for you to practice self-care if you're having the flu or if your kid's sick. Like you should attend to yourself. 
And yet they found this pride in always being there for other people at the expense of themselves, which really then mimics that early childhood dynamic. That early childhood kind of neglect that they they had. That's very interesting. So it's kind of like almost self-fulfilling. This is how I survived and I I don't even know that I'm taking it on. Exactly. Yeah, it really becomes an identity. And I and that was just one example I gave. We we talk about five different survival styles. Uh, and I was referring to this one that we call the attunement survival style, but each developmental stage during early childhood has different compromises or strategies that we learn that then we carry into adulthood. And so, yeah, part of the process of, of working clinically and, and bringing this into helping people in their lives is, like you said, is helping people bring it to consciousness and identify it, but also in their bodies somatically helping them to start to shift those patterns that, that it's keeping it stuck. Can you give an example, like when you say in their body somatically, what, it, what would a person who doesn't know anything about this, what would that look like? What do you mean by that? Okay, so let, let's go back to that example of that guy who has trouble uh, expressing his needs. So maybe he's been at, at a job for 10 years and he's never gotten a raise and he really wants a raise. He, he feels like he deserves a raise. And even the thought of going into the boss's office to ask for a need brings up tremendous anxiety, tremendous panic even, or maybe starts bringing up a feeling of shame or guilt. And that's an emotional process, but it's also a physical process where people might start feeling constricted. They might feeling heart racing. They might sweat. They might feel fidgety or shaky. And we're helping people, in somatic psychology, we call it self-regulation, which is that we're helping people learn how to find greater balance with their body states, with these, some, these physical expressions that come out as symptoms. So they would, they, like if they were like this guy, he's going to go confront his boss, you would work with him with all the feelings that come with that, which is probably from his own past, right? Exactly, and kind of uh, cope with them, or what would he do with them once once you once he has those feelings and he's working through them? How do you help him with that? So we we call NARM a top down and bottom up approach. So we work both top down, which means that's the brain from the top down. So which means that we work from the thoughts and the the identity we have taken on for ourselves, and how those thoughts and identities drive our emotional responses and our our physical responses. And then we also work from a bottom-up perspective, which is that we work with the body and how that then, when the body gets into greater balance, how that will impact the emotions, the thoughts, and the behaviors. So, you know, how it actually looks in a clinical session, you know, it's, it's really much better for people to watch it because it's a little hard to describe how that actually looks clinically. But we, uh, we, when we're teaching, we use a lot of demonstration session videos for people to really see how we're bringing this bottom-up and top-down approach into working with, with our clients. Right, because it's very in the moment, very, um, uh, I imagine it's like with the emotions, sometimes you may not be even saying anything. Exactly. Just, you're there. Yeah. You're there and in that moment and that person's processing through that emotional experience, probably in a, in a, in a new way. Exactly. That, that's the, the, the key there, Dwayne, is that, that they're experiencing themselves in a, in a new way. And often, here, here's the kicker, that often it's really exciting and they feel like hope and, and excitement, 
but they also feel a lot of fear because they're changing something that they, that they've relied on their whole life and that in in some really deep way keeps them connected to their family. Right. Right. Yeah, definitely. They're going to feel that if they face that, they're going to feel that uh, possible or fear that possible attachment loss if they don't behave the way they should have or whatever their environment demanded of them. Exactly. And I, I'm sure you talk about this a lot, but you see this with uh, you know alcoholic family systems where one person starts to get healthy or get sober and it's like the whole system unconsciously wants to pull that person back into the dysfunction. Yeah. And get it back. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's really kind of this twisted way because, of course, if you asked everyone, they would want that person to get healthy. But there's this unconscious dynamic of wanting, uh, you know, the family binds are so strong. They're so, so strong. And so when we start to make these shifts towards greater health, greater balance, again, like I said, there's this excitement, there's this empowerment, but there's also this unconscious or sometimes conscious fear and and constriction that's like holding us back. Yeah, and I always kind of tie it to when we're infants, we're born to get our parents to love us because where our survival is dependent on it. If our parents don't love us, then they're not going to feed us. Exactly. They're not going to and and it, it's like to me it's like a deep rooted desire even if our parents are harming us, even if our parents are abusive, we're biologically kind of designed to get our parents to care for us. Yes, exactly. I mean, John Bowlby, who created the attachment theory, some of your listeners probably are familiar with that, but he talked about that this, this attachment was not just about emotional bonding, but was a survival mechanism that without the attachment, the child literally would feel like he or she is going to die. And that's how strong it is. And it doesn't matter if you're one day old or 101 years old. It is deeply embedded. We, we, are, we are very social creatures as humans. And it's very, it's very deeply embedded that we are wired to be in relationship. And, and the most primary relationship is the relationship to the attachment figures. Even when we're 101 years old and our parents have passed, that is still hardwired very deeply into us. Yeah, and I think that's why it's so hard for people to let that go because in some ways we're fighting our own biology, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, we're working and that's hard sometimes and can be really, really difficult. And I think when it gets difficult to resolve, that's also where people just turn to addiction as a way to change how they feel. You know, it's like that's right. I mean, I see that a lot with uh, working in the addiction field a lot of, of this developmental early childhood trauma that's almost unconscious. I mean, for some people it's very obvious and then for some it's, it's not obvious. And, and, uh, but it just, it kind of feeds that addictive cycle because they can't, they can't get out of it. They can't get out of that developmental trauma. Yeah. I mean, I see that all the time too. And, and at the root of it is really this deep core pain or heart. I mean, it's an emotional and physical pain or heartbreak, if you will, of being a child that looks out to the world and isn't being met and isn't being supported and loved the way that he or she feels very deep in, in, the, in their body that they're supposed to be held or seen or loved. And when that pain becomes at the core of who we are, as we get older, we look for all sorts of strategies to stay away from the pain. And, and, and substances and addictive processes are really great ways to, 
keep away from the pain. Yeah, and I I think like what you were saying earlier, just uh, the state of the world. If you look back and you look at that accumulative counting of all the all the trauma out there, it feeds a lot of the strife. If if people are suffering and in pain, sometimes they will they'll they'll take it out in other directions. Yeah, all sorts of directions. We talk about acting out and acting in. So people act out in terms of being violent or, or abusive to one another, or even just unkind and uncaring. And then acting in, so many of us are very harsh towards ourselves and, and direct a lot of shame and self-hatred even towards ourselves. And sometimes people are doing both. They're acting in and acting out. And that creates a lot of distress, a lot of pain. Yeah, a lot of pain. And I think it's so, I mean, I think as we're beginning to see this, like you said, this is kind of, I think the the field of psychotherapy in the, in the last 15, 20 years has been really evolving and being able to see this beyond just our thoughts, but really our biology and how it all plays together. Yeah. And that's really exciting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, cause th- this is the hope of it. it uh, there's a small kind of, group of people in the trauma field that talk talk a lot about post-traumatic growth. And for me, this is what it's all about. It's about that, of course, none of us would ever choose to go through the traumas. If we had to make a choice, we would none, none of us would ever choose to go through these experiences, whether they're shock trauma experiences or whether they were childhood experiences. However, they give us an opportunity to reorganize our lives in new ways. And if we really are able to find the strength and courage and support we can use these patterns for reorganization and ultimately for transformation. And that's how we hold it. We look at this approach of NARM as a vehicle for personal transformation, that we're using these strategies and these old patterns. And as we help people to start to connect more to them, they can reorganize their inner experience and transform their lives in, in really significant ways. Right. And so they can really begin to thrive, which is very exciting and very hopeful. Exactly. Yes. So one more question for you. If anybody is out there struggling, what would you want to, what would you want to say to them? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, the first place to start, and I know this might sound a little cliche, but I, I really believe it, is that we're all doing the best we can. We're really all doing the best we can given the circumstances of what we've been dealt in life and what we have to face in life. So that's number one is just to give ourselves a little bit of slack and and not be so hard on ourselves that we all make mistakes, we all make bad choices. And I believe there's a power to acknowledging those and to being really authentic and and I really screwed up, I made a mistake, uh, I wish I could do that again and try to make repair with people that we might have harmed. So that, I mean, that's number one is really trying to replace some of the shame with, with self-compassion and self-acceptance. And then from there, really seeking out support that's going to be helpful and, and feel safe and feel supportive and be effective. And, you know, I do a lot of training. This is kind of where my career has, has evolved. I'm doing a lot of training and, and consultation supervisions for mental health professionals. And there are people out there who are so dedicated to what they're doing and doing really amazing, outstanding work. And there's more we can do. And I, I'm a person that's constantly wanting to learn, constantly wanting to develop. And it's just exciting for me to be part of helping people 
who are already doing really powerful work, but to, to learn uh, work that might support them to be even more effective. And so I would encourage people to, to seek out support from trauma-informed specialists who can really help them get to the root of these issues and to help them to transform their life so they can really lead the lives that they, they want to be leading for themselves. Oh, thank you, Brad. I, I think that's such a great message to people out there. Yeah, we are way too hard on ourselves and there's help out there. Yeah. So I just want to really thank you for coming on. If anybody wants to get more information about you and what you do, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, so the best way to, to go about that is to check out our NARM Training Institute website, which is narmtraining.com. And uh, I think there's a link to my personal website from there, which is body-mindtherapy.com. And one of the things I wanted to just share with listeners, I know some people on here are helping professionals and some are just listeners to your podcast. And we are launching very soon an online training program, which will be open both for helping professionals and for the general public. And we're going to be kind of pulling up the hood so people can see what we do in this work. We're going to show a lot of demonstration videos, and we're going to be deconstructing those and sharing with people what we're doing. So for people that are therapists already, it will help them in their work. And for people that are just people looking for for self-growth and healing, we hope that we'll also provide some resources. We're going to we're going to break down and do webinars on different topics. For example, working with trauma and addiction, that's one topic we're going to be doing a webinar on. And we're launching this in the next few weeks, and so we're really excited about uh, having a platform that we can make this work more accessible for people everywhere because we really believe, like I said before, that the healing in the world is going to come through us healing trauma. So we're just super dedicated to getting it out there as much as we can. So we'd invite anyone that's interested to check out our website and uh, sign up for our newsletter. And we'll be sending out information when we're ready to launch in the next few weeks. Oh, that's awesome, Brad. Yeah. And I'll put a, a link on the show notes as well. And that will be at the addictedmind.com forward slash 44. That sounds awesome. And what great, great work and what positive things to, to give back to the world. Yeah, and I appreciate you for all the work you're doing and, and the people you're bringing on to your podcast too. And I'm, I'm just really grateful for you inviting me and I look forward to further conversations. All right, Brad, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Dwayne, really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. You can find all the information in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 44. I'll put all the links that Brad talked about there and you can get um, all that information. Once again, if you're enjoying The Addicted Mind and you find this information helpful, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help get us exposure. Also, sign up for our newsletter. You can get uh, each episode right into your inbox and uh, as soon as I release one, you'll know about it. So once again, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for being part of the Addicted Mind. And I will talk to you next week. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. 
We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.